and I just kind of, you know, end up kind of going down one path or going down another path when in reality I need to go down my path, you know, as weird as it is or as uncharted as the territory may be, you know, I need to, I need to do that. And so I've been really working on just making decisions and saying, you know what, fuck it, I'm doing it, right? I'm doing it. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. This is Dan Putt. I wanted to start this episode with a quote that was actually mentioned by our guest. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightening about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not in just some of us. It's in everyone. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. This quote is often attributed to Nelson Mandela's 1994 presidential inauguration speech, but it actually comes from Marianne Williamson in her 1992 best-selling book, A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. How does that land for you? For me, I got to be honest, it feels like it was written for somebody else, a different type of person a more capable and more talented and more powerful type of person. But it wasn't. It's a reminder to us all that within us, we have the capacity to, as our guest says today, make really heavy, seemingly immovable things move. In other words, we have great power if we choose to own it. The choice is always there and ours to make. John Guyton, an entrepreneur and speaker, is a man who owns his power more than most. He joins Jerry and shares his story and how he can't help but tackle big problems, not because they are fun, but because they need to be tackled. From finding missing children to now directly discussing and addressing the economic gap that exists between Black Americans and other communities. In hearing John's story and his mission, I can't help but think of another line from Marianne Williamson. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. A Reboot Circle is a hand-selected group of peers in matching roles who meet in supportive, Reboot Coach-facilitated sessions twice a month. We just recently started accepting applications for new roles, including Head of Product, CTO, People Ops, and VP and marketing groups. And this is for the very first time. So what are these groups really like? We asked a current member to share his experience with Reboot coach and facilitator, Andy Chrisinger. Hi, my name is Bobby Brannigan. I'm co-founder and CEO at Mercado. One of the biggest challenges that I face as an entrepreneur has been navigating the waters of solving hard problems while under extreme stress. You can't be open and honest with everyone about your business. Right, because you don't want to scare people away. You don't want to get people nervous because that's going to affect their ability to do what they have to do. At the same time, you know, there's not a lot of people that actually could relate to these situations. So having a group you could turn to is extremely beneficial and allows you not only to spend more time thinking about these issues and how to better solve them, but hearing yourself explain them out loud and getting people to question different routes that you might think about taking and and that kind of stuff is invaluable. It's been great to have that group to really think in a much deeper sense with people that are sharing the same challenge and they're really trying to grow and really get out of that comfort zone just as I am. That's been really excellent for me. So who do you turn to? What if you had a community of peers who are committed to supporting you in solving your greatest business challenges? 
a group that knows intimately the very challenges you face every single day in your role, a group you knew you could always count on. There is great power in knowing you are not alone. Learn more about Reboot Circles and apply for a group in your role at reboot.io slash circles. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. That quote is from Marianne Williamson in her 1992 best-selling book, A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. Hey, John, how are you? It's great to see you again. Great to see you too, Jerry. Yeah. Um, before we get started, why don't you just take a minute and introduce yourself? Well, my name is John Guyton. I am a speaker, an entrepreneur, a CEO of Lassie Project, and director of The Dark Dollar. Wow. So we're going to hear all about both of those things, but it's actually really great to see you. I've only seen you a couple of times since we really hung out together and you came to the boot camp and uh, I guess it was 2015, was it? Yes. Uh, and uh, we actually first met, I think, at the Techstars version of a one-day boot camp the year before. Right. Right. So, um, and, you know, every six months or so I get a dose of John, uh, which makes my, my life <laughs> much happier. Yeah. So thanks for coming on the show and, and agreeing to talk with us. And Thanks for having me. Before we dive into what we want to talk about, I, I thought it would be good to sort of give us an update on, uh, I guess, where you are. You, we've got Lassie Project, and then you're a producer, did you say, or director of yeah. this yep. film? Yeah, I'm directing a documentary right now. Right. So tell me a little bit about Lassie Project, because that's the context in which we first met. Absolutely. So Lassie Project, man, we set out to radically changed the way that we protect our children, right? We, we set out to prevent child abductions. And, you know, it's been quite the journey since the boot camp. It made me realize, or it just kind of forced me to ask the question of what do I, what is the real goal? And when you break it down, the goal is to make sure when somebody's little boy or little girl goes and leaves and goes to school, that they make it home safely. Now, what I realized is that has absolutely nothing to do with the actual business model. It mm -hmm. becomes a necessity, a necessity of, of doing business, obviously, mm -hmm. and figuring that out. And so we have since then uh, created a foundation, uh, Lassie Project Foundation, and you know, going the nonprofit route to remove the question of, how are you going to make money? Mm -hmm. Every time somebody asks that question, it made me really question why I was doing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. How are we going to make money? And I was feeling the pressure to answer the question. Now, there is definitely still an opportunity for that. There's ancillary products and there's, there's other opportunities and avenues in which we can, we can go. But right now, mm -hmm. we have to master and grow the crap out of the original piece, which is, let's do that. If we do that, everything else will open up. The original piece being keeping our kids safe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. I, you know, I, I, I remember from the camp, we didn't spend a whole lot of time with those sort of typical questions of, well, what's your business model? Because that's not what we do, right? But I, I know from my old days as, a, as an investor, that would be an obvious question. But what I do remember is just how powerful your, it's like your body changes when you talk about keeping kids safe and how important that is for you. And I just want to say, you know, from those of us out there who are not necessarily directly involved in the Lassie Project, thank you. That's a really, really important project that you guys started. And, you know, from my lips to God's ears, let's keep it going. Absolutely. Absolutely. We think that uh, we'll get enough you know, we'll get enough donations to keep operations, you know, to keep operations going. And we're working on a very big partnership that will help Lassie Project be pervasive throughout the world mm -hmm. and be the world's best way to find a missing person, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's working, right? Mm -hmm. We're finding, we have police departments that call us for help, mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, it's a good thing. So we're going we're gonna to continue to do that and kind of move in that direction. But it's really, 
the boot camp is kind of what spurred the thought of like, wait a minute, take a step back and answer the question of why are you doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And it also brought up some other things that I wasn't prepared to to deal with even, right? Mm-hmm. Just, uh, you know, you go to the boot camp, and you're like, man, damn it, I deal with this now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. you're very famous, even in all the boot camp circles, for uh, your line in response to my story about Miller Rippa's demon. Do you remember your line? You got to deal with the demon. Mm-hmm. Got to deal with that. Yeah. You got to deal with it. Right. <laughs> so before we talk about where you are now and, and really sort of post-camp and more important, you know, post this, this pivot, if you will, this real important shift at Lassie Project, let's give a shout out to your co-founder because, you know, he was there too. Absolutely, absolutely. Timotope Shonui, he's like my other half. He is uh, literally, you know, I don't do anything without, uh, without him, you know, without him and his support. Uh, we've been buddies since the seventh grade Right. And it's been an amazing journey. The guy is uh, just beyond amazing. So yeah. you know, we talk every single day. He's a, he's a great, great, great guy. And I think he's actually better looking too. So I <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that too. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so now here you are. And there's this shift happened. And we were talking a few weeks ago. And now we're talking again. And the question to me is, I guess the question for you is, what do you do now? Now, you've got this documentary you're doing. Yes. And, yeah. and there, but I have the sense there are some larger existential questions going on here for you as well. Is that right? <laughs> sure. Of course it's right. <laughs> Who, me? Have a sense about that? <laughs> if, 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 if the listeners could have just seen his face, he looks at me with these eyes and he goes, Gary, what the hell are you going to do to me? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, when, you know, going back to the boot camp, right? I mean, I, I mean, ever since I was seven years old, I've had... You know, I've had things that I've been kind of working on, you know, working through and working on. And even as a youngster, right, I've kind of known that I feel like I've been put on this earth to speak, to evangelize, to inspire people. And I've always been looking for the way to to do that. But there's always been some things holding me back, I think. And I just kind of, you know, end up kind of going down one path or going down another path when in reality, I need to go down my path. You know, as weird as it is or as uncharted as the territory may be, you know, I need to I need to do that. And so I've been really working on just making decisions and saying, you know what, fuck it. I'm doing it. Right. I'm doing it. One part of that is I am uh, I'm, I'm working on a documentary that I will be I will be showing to Sir Richard Branson on Necker Island in May. Awesome. Right. And it's you know, it's one of those things where I again I looked at a problem and I said, you know what, what do I do about this? How do I, you know, how can I make my mark? And I said, all right, I'm going to make a documentary. So I got some folks together and shot some footage and it turned out to be pretty awesome. And so we're going to continue to, uh, you know, continue to tell that story. What's the story? What's the documentary about? Well, it is about America's favorite topic, uh, race. And, you know, I've got a pretty unique take on this, right? Like I, you know, I was born in Compton. My dad moved us out, you know, moved us out early. I, I, I grew up in Orange County, very nice, affluent, uh, predominantly white neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? I went to good schools. I had good opportunities. And I've been faced with some racial inequities uh, later in life. And me personally, I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this. I'm good. Mm-hmm. But then I've started looking at the youngsters, right? I started looking at people like my cousin. My cousin was also born in Compton. We were actually born in the same hospital. He didn't leave the hood. I left the hood, right? So the only difference between our upbringings was, you know, obviously his, his dad and everything, my dad. My dad went to work. His dad went to prison. I went to college. He went to prison. I was going to Vince Ferragamo football camp. He went to juvie, right? We're like the same person. And basically, in a nutshell, the documentary is about the exploration of racial inequities in America and the realization that it's more about money and resources and support than it is about color. If you look at any friend you have, 
no matter what they look like, ask yourself, why are they your friend? They're your friend because you went to school with them. You were like part of the same Boy Scout or Girl Scout troop. You went to church or you went to, you know, they're on the same baseball team or sports team. You, you know, you went to the same college or you went to, you know, you worked together or you did business together or they're your favorite teller at the bank or something like that. There's some connection that has nothing to do with what they look like and everything to do with your proximity to them and your experiences that you share. Mm-hmm. And that has everything to do with money. Yeah. You don't get in your car and drive across town and drive to the, the crappy part of town to meet somebody who doesn't look like you. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an, a corollary to what you're saying too. I totally understand it and I grasp and I grok it. I think that a byproduct of that money is also your education. Oh, you, yeah. You... you you and your cousin went to two different primary schools. Mm-hmm. And that made all the difference, didn't it? Absolutely. I was supposed to go to his, right? I was supposed right. to go to that same school, you know? Right. And, you know, being, you know, you know, being in technology, mm-hmm. being in technology and kind of going through that. And I had a, uh, I got to be, be careful. I wanted to make sure that I uh, protect the, uh, the innocent, if you will. But somebody in good confidence said, look, I feel really crappy about something. And, well, can I say that? I think I can. You know, they feel really crappy about, you know, the fact that uh, they passed on investing in my, in my deal. Mm-hmm. And they said, look, I love you. I love, I love this and that and the other. I love all these things. But here's the fact. It's riskier for me to invest in you because of what you look like. Mm-hmm. Let me explain. I know and you know that you're going to have an exponentially harder time raising money because of unconscious bias, or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really matter. But the fact is that you are going to have a harder time raising money than, than, than somebody who is, is, is not like you. So if I invest in you, then my money is riskier as a result. So from a pragmatic standpoint, it doesn't make sense for me to invest my money in that direction. And it's really shitty. <laughs> and I felt really shitty after that. But I was, I was grateful that he said it. Well, at least he, he was a- honest. He is honest. And he had a point. The point is, you know, and look, there's been all sorts of studies, right? There's been the, the study where they take a job application and they literally just swap the name out. Mm-hmm. They take a business plan. Mm-hmm. Every detail is the same. The only thing different was the team picture. And they swapped it out. They, they sent it to VCs all across mm-hmm. the United States. And there was an 80% swing on who they'd, who they'd invest in. Mm-hmm. So there's a thing, right? I don't think it's racism. I think it's more patterns and whatnot. But the point is, you can, just like an entrepreneur, right? What are you going to do? You're going to sit there and complain and mm-hmm. say, oh man, this is really fucked up and I can't do anything about it. Or do you do, you do something about it? And so for me, I wanted to take action. I, oh, I'm always about taking action. So, well, I mean, we saw that with Lassie Project. Yes. And we saw it, we see it now with the documentary. What's the name of the documentary? The Dark Dollar. The Dark Dollar. Yeah, I it's about that. pulling your wealth together, right? It's saying, if you're telling me and, and a lot of this is, there's a lot of validity to some of the racial inequities. But if you're telling me that it's harder to raise capital in technology as a person of color or as a woman or something like that, okay, cool. What are you going to do about it? Exactly. Let's pool our wealth together right. because when people pool wealth together, it becomes very massive and you know, they're just not doing it. But once you do that, now we can, you know, we can enact change the way we want to do it. If there's, if there's racial inequities in housing, Let's buy some property. Yeah. There's racial inequities in banking. Let's do that. Do you remember the first night of the boot camp? One of the first talks I give is, uh, is called This Being So, So What? Mm-hmm. Remember that saying. And that saying is, okay, this is the situation you're dealing with. What are you going to do about it? Right. Right. And what I notice about you, John, is, and I really feel it strongly now, that... Um, what I hear is this strength of will, this, this focus around, okay, this situation sh- may be shitty. We may have children who are being abducted. What am I going to do about it? We may have unconscious and even conscious bias, because let's be honest, oh, yeah. sh- there's a shit ton of conscious bias here, okay? You know, what am I going to do about it? What are you Who's, who's on the, perhaps the receiving end, not perhaps, who is on the receiving end of that, what are you going to do about it? And there's a theme that sort of is part of who John is that leads to the creation of this documentary. 
But I want to take you back into something larger. So, so you're nodding. Does, does that resonate with you, that, that, that observation I just made? Yeah, I seem to gravitate towards problems that I don't necessarily, you know, I'm excited about solving, but I feel called to do so. Like I just, it's like almost like a, it's almost like a, it's a necessity, really. Uh, I feel like that's, it's been that way. It's like air. It's been that way for a long time. Mm. Yeah. So, so Lassie Project is shifting. The documentary is going to be done. I don't hear you saying, Jerry, I found my calling. I'm going to be a documentarian. I'm going to be a producer of documentaries for the rest of my life. The documentary Lassie Project seem, it's interesting because we called it the Lassie Project too. They both seem like projects of a larger arc, a larger calling. What's that calling, John? What is that calling? I would say, I would say probably if you, if you, if you had to pin down something, I mean, I don't know, inspiration. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I don't know the theme is, but I feel like, I felt like I was put on this earth to inspire people. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not like the, maybe that's not the right answer. I'm not sure, but. Don't, don't worry so much about right. Pay attention to what occurs to you. One of my. Uh, Buddhist teachers, Trumper Rinpoche, used to say, first thought, best thought. So you're put on this earth to inspire people. Do you know what the word inspire means? Breathe in. To breathe in. It's a visualization of the spirit coming into us. So you were put on earth to breathe into other people or to breathe into life something, some things. I yeah. don't know. You, you, you just got quiet here. Yeah, I'm just, still, I'm just processing that, right? It's like, yeah. I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of smart people that sometimes can say things that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Very intelligent people. And I don't think they mean any ill will, but they just, I don't know if they just don't, they don't, they don't have the same optimism that I have. Like, for example, Lassie Project, people were like, oh man, Amber Alert exists. You know, it's like, basically I was very, I was very much so discouraged. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't discouraged, but I was being, people were discouraging me of doing, uh-huh. trying, you know, attempting to dissuade me from doing that. Like, man, this is too, this is a very big problem. There's a lot of moving parts that you don't understand and mm-hmm. this and that and the other. Same thing with you know, race is like, ah, oh, it's so it's super complicated. It's not just, it's not that simple. It's, it's, you know, whatever. Right. And it's kind of like, oh, so I should just like not, you know, or even when, back when I was a kid, you know, even back when I was a kid and really smart people would say things that I'm like, mm, I don't agree with that. Like what? Well, when I was a kid, when I was, when I was seven years old, I developed a really severe stuttering problem. I mean, so bad that I could barely, by the time I was nine, I could barely get a word out. Hmm. It was super frustrating because I had all these things I wanted to say, but I couldn't, I couldn't get them out. Hmm. The stuttering was horrible. And so I'd go to speech therapy twice a week. I'd get out of class and I'd go to speech therapy and I'd be reading these, you know, toddler books, you know, and I'd get like a page in without stuttering and they would cheer for me like as if I was a three-year-old, hmm. you know, it was, it was crazy. And I did that for, for years. Fast forward to my 10th birthday party. My 10th birthday party, it was, a, it was a pool party. We played Marco Polo. And, you know, kids can be cruel. And it was one of those, you know, I said, you know, I was it. I said Marco and I stuttered. And they said Polo and they stuttered back. Oh, geez. And, uh, you know, I was like 10 years old. I'm like, man, fuck this. So I get out of the pool, you know, game over, right? Party's over. Everybody go home. And... I went back to speech therapy and I, I told them like, we need to fix this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm done with the stuttering thing. <laughs> and the, I mean, these are PhD speech pathologists that said, John, you are most likely going to stutter for the rest of your life. And we want to help you by giving you tools to cope with this. <laughs> and I just mustered up, you know, it took me a, a longer than normal to say no, <laughs> you know, just that's all I can say is just no. And I quit speech therapy that day. 
I never went back. And I developed my own strategy. I didn't know if it was right, but I developed my own strategy to, to, to fix this. And I realized three things I could do and not stutter. One was visualization. So I would read books and I wouldn't speak. I would visualize myself speaking in my mind and I would I'd be on stage. I would speak beautifully. The words came out just beautifully. It was, the delivery was amazing. Everyone loved to hear me read. And I would read, 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 read. The second thing I did was uh, when I rapped or sang, I didn't stutter. So I'd walk around the house and I'd sing. I'd make up songs like, can I have a sandwich? Who drank all the Kool-Aid? You know, classic hits. You know, I was walking around <laughs> the house just making up songs because I didn't stutter. So I did it all the time. And then the third thing was when I mimicked the news anchor, I didn't mm. stutter. So I would literally record it every night and I would take it back and I would, and I would, I would play it back and I would, I would mimic the nightly news anchor. Mm. And it took about 11 months of kind of hardcore visualization, singing, rapping, and being the nightly news anchor. And it started to work. And now, as you can hear, I don't have that severe stutter that mm. the PhD speech pathologist said that I would have. Mm. Um, and thank goodness, because we got a lot to say. That's an amazing story, John. That's really powerful. And, and for me, I, I really connect with that part of you that sort of sees a kind of no, you can't do that. And you find a way to, to push through that. And... You know, I know it's important to you to inspire people. I know it's important to you to breathe life into other people's ideas and to help them. You know, in a separate conversation a few weeks back, we were talking about your desire to help people tell their stories. And we laughed right. and we connected it, right, to the stuttering. Um, and now I'm feeling an even deeper connection, which is, on the other side of the stutter is a frustration with the world as it is. And John doesn't take kindly to accepting the world as it is. Am I naming something that's true? So, interest, yes, you are. So the interesting piece is, like, when you asked me what the deeper thing was, and I said to inspire. Yeah. That's part of it, but that's, that's, that's a bullshit answer. Good. Tell me the real, real answer then. Well, the real, because it just sounds crazy, right? But the real answer is to change the world. Like I've felt ever since I was, uh, and, and for, for, for an unrelated reason to the stuttering, mm -hmm. it just happened to be at age seven. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I was put on this earth to change the world. Like, I, like literally I felt like the reason I'm here is to change the, change the world that we live in. Like that's... Mm -hmm. The force that I bring, but it sounds weird. It even sounds uncomfortable just verbalizing it now. It's like, who the who is this guy? Like, who are you? I'm gonna change the world. And then you watch like you know shows like Silicon Valley, and like every startup says it. We're gonna change the world with you know <laughs> cloud based computing, such a you know <laughs> shit like that. It's like I don't want to be lumped in. It's just it's it's uh, it is a bit uncomfortable, but shit's real. Like, and I got to deal with that. Like, this is that's how I felt. You know what I mean? When I was seven, and this is this kind of. It connects to the dark dollar in the, in the documentary. It's like, I was, when I was seven years old, I was convinced. I knew for a fact that Santa Claus was either racist or didn't exist. I knew that to be true. Why? Because I was, you know, I was, I was, um, I mean, was black. I still am black. So black, <laughs> I was born black in America. <laughs> I was born black, right? But I didn't grow up around kids that looked like me. I, I moved to Orange County, grew up with all white kids, right? Which was cool. I had a great, I had a great childhood. Great, great childhood. Everything was great. The thing is, though, the Christmas story, mm -hmm. the Santa Claus story, started to break down to me. Because I'm like, wait a minute. And I bought this story hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. Santa Claus, you got the naughty list and the nice mm -hmm. list. And mm -hmm. if you're a good kid, then you get this thing that you want. And the elves are making it. And I'm like, hell yeah, the elves about to make me my life. <laughs> I've got this. And what happened was, I'd see these little badass kids say, shut up to their mom and, and, you know, got a bad grade and, you know, mm -hmm. did all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, little Timmy's definitely on the naughty list. Like, for sure, right? 
But then come Christmas, and I was good. And then come Christmas time, they'd get the bike, they'd get the toy helicopter, they'd get the metal detector or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'd get like a pack of shirts or some socks. And I'm like, what, what the, the fuck? Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I like, you started right saying a letter, like, yo, Santa, this is some bullshit, man. Like, what's up? And it made me think, like, okay, like, just practical. What's the deal? The only thing, as a seven year old, these are the two, two things I can come up with. Either, what's the difference? Well, maybe he doesn't like kids that look like I do, right? Like, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe he doesn't like kids that look like I do, mm -hmm. or maybe he doesn't exist, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, ultimately, you know, ultimately, I knew that it was the latter, you know, that he doesn't exist. But that theme, you know, carries, uh, carries throughout in lots of different aspects of, of our world. How does that theme impact the, the deeper calling for John to change the world? I've got two daughters and a son. I've got a little life that I've brought into this world that's going to be me. He's two years old. In five years, he's going to be me as a seven-year-old. He's going to be a seven-year-old boy in this world. Yep. And when I look at the things that they, you know, the forces that are there, I look at the, you know, I, I look at this, you know, the, 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 the surroundings and I say, no, no, like, no, that's crazy. Like he's got to be able to have the chance to take a, you know, to play with a toy gun and live to tell about it. He's got to be able to have the opportunity to do these things. And, you know, he's got to, you know, there's a, there's a thing that kind of ties all this together. It's mm -hmm. called the doll test. And, mm -hmm. and for those that aren't familiar with the doll test, they should look it up. It's, it's fair warning. It's really fucking depressing. Mm -hmm. So the doll test, young kids, I'm talking super young kids. They too young to be, or seemingly too young to be corrupted yet. They give them these dolls, white doll and a black doll. And they ask them, which one is the good doll? Mm -hmm. Which one's the bad doll? Which one's the, uh, the pretty doll? Mm -hmm. Which one's the ugly doll? Mm -hmm. Which one's, you know, and, and then, and then the, the most heartbreaking question is like, which doll looks like you? Mm. And it's the saddest shit ever. And they did this study for decades now, and they've done it all around the world. And I look at that study and I say, no. You know, like, no, like, the, it, the, no, we've got to change that. Mm. And it come, and again, for me, it comes back to resources. Like, okay, well, you can blame all the media, it's this and that and the other. That's money. Mm -hmm. maybe, I need to, maybe I need to raise enough money to have a media company. I don't know. I don't care. We're going to get it done. You know, if you look at Black Wall Street back in the 20s, right, people of color said, all right, all right, you're not, you're not trying to, cool. We got 600 businesses. We have our own public transportation system. We've got all of these things. We're doctors. We're lawyers. We are in manufacturing. We're in all these things. And then somebody came along and burned it down and killed everybody. This is in the 20s. <laughs> Nobody even knows about this. People that are listening are probably like, wait, what? <laughs> it's a documentary, Black, Black Wall Street. It's a massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the 20s. And I'm looking at that going, oh, man. You know, fast forward to my grandfather's era. He was born in 1930. Fast forward to the 60s. There was a prominent family in Los Angeles that said, okay, we're starting a corporation. $20 a share, five shares maximum. We're going to buy a grocery store first, and then we're going to keep rolling and buying businesses. We're going to make money. We're going to improve each other's lives. We're going to help build wealth, which is going to give better education, better opportunity. We don't have to rely on others, which is a forever thing. We can rely on ourselves, which is the only way. Let's do this. My grandfather was part of it. Everybody was part of it. They were... They were, they were rocking and rolling. And one day, somebody came and they cut the, they cut the refrigeration lines and they cut, the, they cut the machinery that was outside of the grocery store. The grocery store, they got up. Mm -hmm. It was booming. And somebody went and visited that family. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows the conversation that took place, but somebody visited that family. And the next day, they were making money. The, the next day, they returned all the premium to the shareholders and shut the store down. And everybody went and shopped at the other store. I hear these stories and I'm like, no. So yeah, there's a little bit of fear because there's this history of like something or for some reason it's really hard to galvanize. Um, you know, well, it's not just hard. It's also uh, risky. Dangerous. Yeah. It's really dangerous. So, but there's a calling in here for you, John. There's a calling. This is around that seven-year-old boy looking at the question, 
of Santa Claus and saying, what the fuck? What's that calling? The world as it is, and John's not happy with the world as it is. So there's something really deep in here for you. About There's a theme, and the theme is, seems to be about Now I'm connecting with it. Just before we started recording, we were talking about that quote. What's the quote? So it's a, it's a quote from, from uh, Nelson Mandela, and it says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. How powerful are you, John? Uncomfortable to answer the question, yeah. but... So lean into it. Because you're afraid. <laughs> um, I'm super powerful. I'm like, a, I'm like a superhero, right? When I talk to people. Hey, John. Yeah. You're not like a superhero. You are a superhero. You are my superhero. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's uncomfortable, right? Can, can I put that on a business card? Like, you know, you know what yep. I'm saying? Like, who are you? I'm a superhero. It's like, yeah. wow, you really think this song is about you, don't you? It's, uh... So, John, remember at the camp, we were talking about Milarepa, we were talking about the demons? Mm-hmm. About every 10 minutes or so, there's this voice that pops in, and the voice says, shut up, John. This voice says, John, who the fuck do you think you are? John, oh, wow, you can't put superhero on that business card. John, that's the voice of your demon, of Milarepa's demon. You have got to deal with that voice. That voice is telling you, you can't do it. And you know better, don't you? I do. I do. What do you want to say to that voice? Or that demon? Uh, the one that's the one that said I can't do it. Yeah, and quit. I just want to tell him, like, man, quit fronting, quit lying. You know the scoop. You know it's already going down, right? That's what I want to tell him. Like, you, you know, it's, I mean, you know it's happening, right? Because you know, sometimes that demon has a PhD in speech pathology. Yeah, you know, and sometimes that demon is an analyst at a VC firm that really likes you, John. Really, really likes you. But, but I can't risk my capital. Because, you know, if I, if I back a black man, then, you know, just because I'm in the business of risking capital, I can't risk capital. Right? That's what that demon's voice sounds like. You know what the demon says, too? What? Uh, that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about these things in front of your uh, white counterparts, you're going to make them feel uncomfortable. Fuck that. And, and you're going to alienate yourself because they're going to go, man, here you go. talk Because, you know, the, the, the discussion about race, like most people are like, man, I am so sick of hearing about this. I am so sick of it, right? And I think it's not, I think it's just because most people, I don't know, want people to feel guilty or just walk around feeling shitty about themselves. But that's not my, that's not my journey at all. Not even close, right? I'm saying like, no, I got this. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a solution. Just like, you know, just like Lassie Project, like, I have a solution. Just like the stuttering, like, no, we're going to, like, I'm not going to sit there and mopey about it. But, but part of the, if I'm being honest, like, part of the demon is, is that, right? It's kind of like. I don't want to make my, my, my white colleague, my white friend uncomfortable. Okay. So I'm, I'm a white colleague. I'm a white friend. Right. I grew up with privilege, even though I grew up poor. I grew up lucky to be white, even though I got the shit kicked out of me growing up, okay? Because I still had access to things that you did not have access to because of the color of our skin. And here's the thing from my perspective. If it makes me uncomfortable to hear you talk about your experience being in your skin, that's my problem. That's not your problem. I, if I feel 
guilt. That's my problem. I'm a good man. I have my unconscious biases because I'm a human being. Yep. And I am unafraid to use radical self-inquiry to look myself in the mirror and say, okay, there I go again. What the fuck am I doing? That's not the man I want to be. You want to be you you want to be the superhero? I mean, let's put it, let's be honest. You want to step into being that superhero that you already are? You're going to make people uncomfortable. So what? Maybe part of the problem is we're all a little too comfortable. You know, I mean, not to get too heavy, but our children aren't just being abducted. Our children are being gunned down. Not your kids. Our kids. Our children. We got a problem. We need to do something about it. I need you to be a superhero. Because I can't tell your story. You can tell your story. Best I can do is hold your cape while you fly. That's my job as a coach. This shit got real, didn't it? <laughs> it, always gets, it always gets real. Uh, <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah, you have lunch with Jerry, then you're analyzing why you ordered that sandwich. Uh, you don't, uh, how many, uh, yeah, how many people, how many people do you tell uh, they're a superhero? I don't think I've ever said that to somebody before. I have asked them what their superpower is. Because I think we all have our superpowers. But hero? That's a little bit different. What's your superpower, John? What's my superpower? My superpower is telling... I think my superpower is telling stories that either aren't be aren't being told or people struggle telling them or it seems too daunting to tell or I guess this rambling is evidence that I don't have a down pat what my superpower is. But uh, I would say my superpower is making really heavy, seemingly immovable things move. You know? <sighs> That's pretty powerful, my friend. And not bad for a kid who could barely get the words out, eh? Yeah. 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 Yep. So I, I don't know what your business card's going to end up saying. <laughs> I really don't. You know, maybe you're a coach. Maybe you're a consultant. Maybe you're a speaker. I, I you know... I don't know what box or boxes John's next turn of his career is going to end up in. But I would feel a loss if those boxes didn't contain his superpowers. Right. Yep. Maybe it shouldn't have a title at all. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it shouldn't. You know, when I left J.P. Morgan in 2002, and I spent maybe three or four years sort of sitting on my ass trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life, I remember saying to a friend, I've worked pretty steadily since I was 13. I want to experience life with what life is like with a business card without a title on it. Oh, sweet. I wanted to fig figure out what it'd be like to just be Jerry. And then I backed into coaching. 
I eventually became a coach. So who knows? Maybe that's part of your journey. Yeah. Uh, wow. I think I'm going to do that because I was literally, no, no bullshit. I was literally toiling over what to put on the freaking business card. Like, do I do this, 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 or this, right? It's like I just need to do stuff and, you know, um, become a, a, what I call a master of progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a really big theme uh, throughout my deal. Uh, Jerry, can I? I'm sitting here, as I'm sitting here thinking and I was talking about the dark dollars, like, you know what? I'm holding stuff back. Uh, I'm holding stuff back because I feel like, well, no, nah, that's enough. We talked about that. That's fine. It's kind of like, eh, whatever, right? Like, I'd like to kind of put out there the theory, right? And mm-hmm. the actual thing that I'm actually working on. Right. You know, I'm actually working on. So every quarter I go and I mentor entrepreneurs of color that are doing amazing things. Mm-hmm. But they have no support network whatsoever, no clue as to how to kind of navigate mm-hmm. navigate kind of the world of technology, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they were like me three years ago going to Techstars meetings in a suit and tie, making people feel uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's more uncomfortable about the suit and tie than the yes. color of your skin. Yes. No, it has nothing to do with the suit and tie. Nothing to do with that. Everything to do with the suit and tie. It wasn't like, who's this big black guy coming in? It was like, no, who's this dude in a suit and tie with like a PowerPoint? Like, as you can see in month nine, we're going to be fucking millionaires, you know? Wait, we don't do that, right? But I didn't know, and they don't know. So you just kind of go in, you do your thing. It's like, and then you and then you really get a complex because you're like this dude came in, in like shorts with disheveled hair and like you know I heard him say I don't have a clue about an answer and then he gets funded it's like what the fuck like something's off you know what I mean anyway so it's like that journey's been interesting because it's like oh, okay it's about like you know I'm so grateful for that experience and 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 kind of you know doing that but I'll tell you this as I feel some type of way about you know what's being taught too because it's like. Here's how you navigate the world that you live in. Here's how you navigate like this. You got to be better at this. You got you to really prove this. And we had a, um, some interesting thoughts. So about the dark dollar, it's not even about the documentary. The documentary is just telling, it's helping to tell the story, but the real thing is an actual fund. It's a syndicate fund. It's people saying, look, I'm saying, look, there's millions of you that feel a certain way. Millions of you that are not creating wealth in your life at all, right? Apart, you don't have much money at all. But together, you have a lot of money, right? So let's, let's employ the smartest people in the world to do the same thing that people have been doing for a century, which is use money to make more money. That's not hard. People do that all the time, every day. There's, there's 100 PE firms that nobody's heard of that are making tons and tons and tons of money. They make it in real estate. They make it in tech. They make it in you know, acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions, all sorts of shit. Mm. What all I'm saying is I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to become the next uh, uh, great uh, PE firm or VC. I want to create a fund, and the only thing revolutionary about the fund is the source of capital. Mm. I want to create the connectivity required for people to get it and go, whoa, I, I, I invested a hundred bucks and guess what? Look what happened to it. Now I get it. And all of a sudden you start to steamroll and then all the race talk starts to fall away because the discussion is, it's about action now. Mm. Instead of, we need help. We need help. It's like, no, 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 no. We're, we're building this. Just implemented that, mm. doing that. Mm. Invested 20 million into this, you know, oh, we need more blacks and... Oh, blacks and tech need more investment? Cool. Be the fund then. Stop talking to the fund and trying to change them. Be the fund yourself. Sounds like that family in L.A. during the 1960s. That's it. That's it. How do I be the family in L.A. in the 60s, but don't get visited sometime in the middle of the night and then tomorrow return premium to everybody and shut it down? How do I I galvanize people like they did at Black Wall Street in, in the Tulsa in the 20s? And, you know, the American dollar has never circulated more in one community than it did there ever in the history to today. Sounds like if you pull this off, you'll be a hero to a lot of people. Yeah, including, including, I mean, everybody, right? Not just people of color, but everybody. Including your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. You know, it's that conversation, right? My kids. My daughter is, she's our oldest and she's, she'll be seven um, here next month. 
And, you know, she came home one day uh, crying uh, because they were learning about Martin Luther King and learning about civil rights and learning about this stuff. And she was bawling uh, because there was she was learning about a time where mommy and daddy couldn't get married. Mommy and daddy wouldn't have been able to be together. And that means she wouldn't be she wouldn't be able to be there. She be. And she was just so upset. And it just like. Man, I just, I, you know, you take that and you go, oh man, this is, this is so much bigger than just like, you know, oh, you need to invest in more black people in technology. Fuck all that. This is, this is way, 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 way bigger than that, right? Like this is taking serious action so that those discussions are, are not the same. I mean, how could I in good conscience, you know, have a kid that grows up and then says, hey dad, did you know how jacked up things were? Like, do you know how jacked up things are? And I'm like, yeah, I know. And then them look at me and go, and you didn't, you didn't do anything. You just like, you're cool with this. That I can't, I can't have that. I can't, I can't have it. So. I don't think you will. I don't think you will. John, I just want to thank you. I think this has been in a tremendous conversation. It's I've learned a lot and I've laughed and I even cried. Although you didn't see me cry. I hid it from you. And uh, I just want to thank you for the work you're doing to figure out who you are, because we all benefit from that process. So. Oh, well, thank you. I very much so appreciate who you are and what you're doing, because you are unlocking perspective in people mm-hmm. that they desperately need. Mm-hmm. And so thank you. No, it's my pleasure. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, Head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.